Welcome to the Circular Economy Show podcast, or welcome back to the Circular Economy Show podcast. I'm your host, Seb, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Lara. Hi, Seb. Um, And on today's episode, we're diving into a couple of topics that have been familiar to us recently on this podcast. We're looking at um, the connection between the circular economy and climate, how better circular design and circular strategies can help to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. And that's been a common theme with conversations from COP26 and also um, a recent episode where we aired a conversation between Ellen MacArthur and Cristiano Figueres. And also we're diving into the built environment, the world of buildings. They're all around us, but how much time do we spend thinking about what goes into them? And of course, a few weeks ago, we had the academic Eric Corey Free talking about various strategies um, from the circular economy in the built environment. And today, Lara, we, or rather you, are taking a deep dive into one of those areas with Grace Di Benedetto from Arup. Tell us what we're going to hear. Exactly, Seb. Um, you're going to hear me in conversation with Grace Di Benedetto, who is a structural engineer at Arup. And together, we dive into some of the issues that the built environment faces at the moment. Some of them, you've mentioned them already. We explore the benefits of designing for deconstruction as opposed to demolition. Um, we explore what material passports are and how these new technologies can help us you know, drive change in the built environment, drive positive change. And then we're also going to talk about tr- the, this building called One Triton Square. And you were there, right, Seb? I've been inside One Triton Square. It's kind of, sort of well known as one of the sort of a one, one of Arab's kind of pioneering refurbishment and reuse projects. Huge amounts of uh, greenhouse gas emissions saved and amazing amount of reuse of original infrastructure. Um, and very interesting to walk around a building as we we featured this on one of our episodes of the Circular Economy show, which you can find out on the found which you can find on the foundation's YouTube channel. Um, very interesting to walk around a building that's been un, been sort of designed but not furbished. Um, structural engineer, by the way. When I was a kid, I really wanted a really cool job title like that. So I'm very interested to listen to Grace on that point. And I believe you started this conversation by asking a question directly to one of the points you just made. Like, why do we demolish our buildings when we put so much value, time, resources, effort, energy into making them? All right, Seb, then let's jump in. So thank you, Grace Di Benedetto, for being here with us today as part of our Circular Economy Show by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Um, I would like us to start the conversation by talking um, a little bit about something I read the other day. I was reading the BBC News and I saw this article uh, that said that uh, UK, uh, the UK's top engineers are urging the government to stop demolishing buildings. And I couldn't uh, help by ask, but ask myself, why are we still doing it? So I, I was like, I need to ask this to Grace. That's absolutely right. Um, it is a big question. Why are we demolishing buildings today? From the outset, it seems like it doesn't make sense. We have these fantastic stores of materials that are high quality and valuable materials. We've spent millions of pounds to, to create these buildings. Why are we letting them become piles of rubble? Um, And there are many reasons for it. Um, The buildings that have been designed have not been designed to be taken apart. They've been designed to be ripped apart and crushed for land for landfill or for downgrading. Um, So there's, at the moment, many logistical issues um, 
to actually deconstructing buildings as opposed to demolishing them. Um, and there's also a really big challenge around if we are to switch to deconstruction, um, what are the costs associated with that? And uh, that can scare a lot of, uh, of clients um, from, you know, choosing de deconstruction over demolition. Um, so, yeah, there's a, <laughs> it's a really big subject, um, but I think the key, the key item is at the design stage. Um, so it's what our engineers and architects and designers can do um, to change from de demolition to deconstruction. And that's why, why we are here today to hopefully give the audience uh, a little bit of an overview of what that can look like in, in practice. So what does better design for buildings uh, look like? And what specifically is design for deconstruction? Sure. So design for deconstruction is a philosophy where buildings are designed intentionally for material recovery and reuse at the end of life. So like I said, currently buildings not only have zero value at the end of life, they actually cost money to demolish and to process the waste. So instead, when we design for deconstruction, you have this fantastic ability to create buildings which, which act as these stockpiles of, of these valuable materials that can be easily taken apart and used in new buildings instead of virgin materials. And in doing that, that helps us to sort of chip away at the enormous amount of carbon emissions which are associated with the built environment. Um, and in terms of um, in terms of actually doing this practically, um, the deconstruction, like the ideal deconstructible building is very similar to a Lego, Lego building. Um, so we try and design components that are modular, connections that are reversible, just like Lego, um, and materials that are, are robust and reusable. And we want to try avoid using any paints or coatings that might be difficult to remove um, and we want to ensure that the components of the building are easy to access and there's a plan for how they can sort of safely be removed without damaging the item. And I mean you, you brought it, this up in your first, in your first answer uh, the importance of, of design of the design stage and you know how much of uh, our environmental impact is determined by decisions that we made in that crucial design stage. Um, and right now, I love the Lego explanation, by the way. It makes it uh, quite simple to understand for somebody like me who doesn't understand a lot about the built environment. But surely in the real world, there are some challenges that come to this. It's, it's not as easy and as simple as, as the Lego uh, toys uh, are. So what are some of the trade-offs and challenges that you've experienced? Yeah, so in terms of... Um yeah, challenges is definitely a challenge in getting our building clients on board. So there's currently a perception that design for deconstruction um, increased costs. Um, but we have found that some of the easiest and cheapest interventions, like just having a deconstruction plan um, and using material passports, are actually some of the most powerful when it comes to deconstruction and reuse. So a challenge in designing for deconstruction is the increased costs at the end of life of the building um, and the lack of incentives to overcome this. So as designers, we can help remedy this by supporting circular business models and specifying reused materials in the buildings that we design today. And can I ask, because you mentioned this before, but what is a material passport? 
Yeah, sure. So a material passport is basically a digital identity document that contains information on all parts of a building. Um, it's a tool that helps us to understand the value of materials in a building and which parts of it can be reused and recycled. Um, and for people who are looking for reclaimed materials to use on new projects, material passports can give them a level of reassurance that the performance requirements can be met. Um, and it also helps building owners to see see their building as a sort of bank of materials rather than just this sort of worthless pile of rubble, which encourages deconstruction over demolition. And, I mean, obviously, as you speak, it, it comes to mind that one of the benefits is probably, you know, reducing the amount of waste uh, that the built environment, environment produces. Uh, but what are other uh, benefits that perhaps designing for deconstruction can have economic or environmental, any kind of benefits? Sure. So 11% of global carbon emissions is attributed to the carbon which is embodied in the materials that we use. So in designing for deconstruction, we are um, potentially opening up a, um, a stock of materials that can be reclaimed at the end of life and reused in new buildings, which then in turn reduces the carbon emissions associated with new buildings. Um, and in terms of um, economic, you know, in going for design for deconstruction, you know, one of the challenges that's often cited is the increased use of labour at the end of life to deconstruct, you know, in order to, to unbolt everything um, rather than just go through it with an earth mover involves a lot more people. But that is a real great opportunity for job creation, um, as is, you know, refurbishment of things that come out of existing buildings for, um, for reclamation is also a really labour-intensive process that, that can create jobs in the local economy. And Grace, you, you, you work for, for Arub and, and you obviously have a lot of experience uh, working on the circular economy and, and the built environment. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what is happening um, already. Um, I know uh, you have a building that our audience has seen before in, in a video called One Triton Square. What makes this building so special or different from others? Sure. So to start with, it's a refurbishment project, which is something that's becoming much more common, um, but it is still perhaps not the norm. Um, so that project, One Trident Square, is an existing building that was built in the 90s, um, and the client wanted to maximise the value of the site by increasing the floor area by around 70%. If we were doing business as usual, the design team would usually say like 70%. There's, there's no way that we can make that happen without demolishing and rebuilding. But instead, they found an opportunity to retain much of the existing structure or adding new stories and infilling empty space. And ultimately, this resulted in 50%, 56% of the embodied carbon um, compared to a new to a new build and uh, demolition scheme. Um, and that's sort of the Um, in situ reuse story but part of it that I find really interesting and different is that rather than replacing the facade which looked quite uh, tired and perhaps dated what they did is they dismantled it um, and transported around 3,000 square meters of it um, to a pop-up factory where each panel was inspected cleaned and had the gaskets replaced 
Um, and then it was installed back on the building, which resulted in a 66% saving in cost. Um, and even things like paving and other roof materials were reused products from other demolished building, buildings. Uh, this is a this is a great example of of dismantling a building and and refurbishing and uh, well and a great example of the circular economy. But are these options scalable at the moment? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing about design for deconstruction which means it can't be used on projects of any size. Um, but there's definitely um, an education piece that needs to be done to develop guidance around design for deconstruction, not just for clients, but also for designers, contractors, demolition experts, so that they really understand the technicalities of achieving it. Um, and I think to scale, we also need more case studies and more large-scale demonstrators that can really reassure stakeholders and insurers. Um, and I think really... Uh, really big part of it, as with many circular economy interventions, is making sure that it's instigated early on in the project. So this really helps to sort of bake in a culture around circular design um, and kind of moving away from that linear consumption thinking. Um, if you try to do design for deconstruction as a sort of bolt-on at the end of a project, it, it really isn't efficient and it doesn't quite work. So we have to bring this thinking, um, this kind of bigger idea of the circular economy across the way that we design, we make and we use um, materials and, well, everything around us, basically. Um, so we've spoken a little bit about, uh, you know, reusing materials, the importance of design. Um, I wonder as well, um, Grace, um, is there a market for uh, re reuse, uh, sorry, recyclable uh, steel or all these material cement that are used uh, in the construction uh, industry? Is there a market at the moment and what can we do uh, to create a, a better one or better conditions? Yeah, so it's in the UK, it's at its very early stages. There are some um, some organisations which are ahead of the game in terms of providing reclaimed uh, structural materials, for instance, for things like brick that's been done for ages, that's a really common material to reclaim. Um, but I think the challenge here is that you're kind of put into this uh, chicken and egg situation. Um, so, for instance, if I wanted to get hold of 35 tonnes of reclaimed steel, I would really struggle to find that quantity of material in existence. And so I, I probably would think I would maybe do a look online and I wouldn't find anything. Um, and because of that, the people at the end of life, the demolition contractors and the salvages, they don't see any demand for these materials. Um, and so they don't think it's worth the additional effort to carefully deconstruct, to store and to refurbish the materials because they just don't see people who are wanting it. Um, but this shouldn't stop us, right, from designing for deconstruction, as you said in the beginning. We might not have, you know, all the answers yet, but we have to start somewhere if we want to make this transformation possible. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah, I've, I think with many things in the circular economy, you often start to uh, get almost a bit confused around the circularity of responsibilities, Um you know, why should we design for deconstruction when there's there's no market for it at the end? But uh, it's funny because a while back I was I was making dinner and I got to thinking that that someone must have 
invented the tin can before the tin opener. And I Googled it. And in fact, the tin opener was only brought to market some 50 years after the invention of the tin can. So the inventor designed it knowing that it was something transformational, but without having all the answers to know how it could be used. And, and like you said, Lara, you know, in terms of circular economy and design for deconstruction, we shouldn't wait to have all the answers to start doing what's in our area of influence. Um, you know, once we start doing what we can do, that will start the engine of the circular economy and it will make reuse more viable eventually. And I mean, you just mentioned the, the area of influence. And in our previous conversation, you told me everyone has a role to play. I'm just a structural, a structural engineer. But what inspires you to bring the circular economy to your work? And what does it mean for you to be part of this? Yeah, so for me, the circular economy, it feels so obvious. You know, especially as a structural engineer, some of the materials that we use, like steel, um, you know, they go through a process, um, you know, the primary production of steel involves mining and, you know, mining that has, you know, as we know, some damaging effects on, on the environment and the communities that surround it. And it's transported, you know, maybe from Australia to China and then in China it's processed and then it's sent to the UK where we do all sorts of, uh, you know, processing to it and then eventually it goes in the building it just feels so obvious that instead we use our local buildings and deconstruct them and re-implement those into new buildings instead of going through this this crazy convoluted global process I just for me it feels like the obvious solution to so many issues to volatility in the global markets as well Thank you, Grace. I think that is a great answer uh, to finish this conversation. Thank you so much uh, for being part of the Circular Economy Show. Wow, you were absolutely on fire in that conversation, Lara. I know. Um, I really think I can learn a lot from um, your interviewing techniques and great to hear some of those concrete examples and to dive into some of the strategies that Grace is pursuing in her everyday work and trying to figure out and work through what were some of the things that stood out to you from your time with Grace? I think, well, two things, Seb. Um, this idea of that we need to change our mindset, that we need to change how we see everything around us. I mean, in this case, we were focusing on buildings, but this kind of mindset shift could be applied to anything we have around us um, and everything we use. Um, so this idea that we have to, to, to start seeing, you know, like a building as like, a source of materials, like materials that are useful, that could be reused, and how we we have to imagine, reimagine, I guess, how spaces are used as well. Like, I don't know, it's just, it's just really changing this mindset. Don't you feel like, you know, it's a completely different way of thinking, Seb? I think it requires a flipped approach, and and the challenge of that, of course, which you dug into a little bit of grace, and there are still some big open questions, and you also dug into it with with Eric on the podcast a few episodes ago is how we take the very scaled approaches that we have today in the built environment and replace them with some of the thinking and the knowledge and the different ways of doing things at scale. Still an open question. And also, she, she kind of mentions we need to start somewhere, right? We can't get stuck and we might not have all the answers to the questions. I mean, we, we can see with you know the conversations that you and I host regularly, like there are some questions that we still have no idea how to answer, but 
you know, we should we should still challenge and keep pushing and we get some of them. There's this great poem that goes, start close in, not with the second or the third step, but start close in with the first step. And that's what I'm taking away from that conversation, Lara. Um, if you're enjoying these podcasts, it means a huge amount to us. If you like, subscribe, share, tell other people about it, encourage them to listen in, maybe even recommend, you know, recommend guests, you know, tweet at us or whatever means you have at your disposal. Um, but that's all for this episode of the podcast. Thanks so much for co-hosting this one with me, Lara. Thank you, Seb. And before we finish, let's just remind our audience that this podcast is brought to them by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, where we work on developing and promoting the circular economy. We work with key actors that are making the circular economy a reality, and we mobilize solutions at scale. Um, thank you so much, Seb, and see you next week. See you next week.